Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is April 5th, 2017. And this is Episode 6, Profession and Purpose, the Changing Face of the EM Profession. In this episode, we explore how our young field has been progressing and discuss what professionalization means. How did we get here and where are we going? To help us tackle these big questions, we're going to speak with Jack Lindsay, an associate professor at Brandon University's Applied Disaster and Emergency Studies program. We'll also be holding another journal club to discuss some recent articles on emergency management and share some tools of the trade. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. Professionalization is a topic that concerns all professions and no more so than emergency management. In the field today, we've seen a rapid change from experience-based learning to a more academic route. And not everyone thinks it's a good thing and there's been some challenges along the way. Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion. When you look in Canada, there's so many different training programs to get into emergency management. There's certificates, diplomas, undergraduate degrees, master's degrees. And some people have said this is just academic inflation. Many of the uh, fathers, so to speak, of founding fathers of emergency management uh, didn't have that type of academic preparation. So is it needed? Um, I'm a firm believer that emergency management practice should be evidence-based and that we should uh, be able to use um, research to help inform our policy and programming decisions. But uh, why don't we go on to the interview now? And here's Jack Lindsay. Today we have Jack Lindsay, who is an associate professor in the Applied Disaster and Emergency Studies, or ADES, department at Brandon University. And he's here to talk a little bit about the professionalization that's occurring in the EM field. Mr. Jack Lindsay, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, Grayson, Joshua, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, welcome to the show. So why don't you start off a little bit and just tell us about your background? Uh, sure. I uh, became interested in disasters uh, in 1989. Um, I had just started a city planning degree when the earthquake happened in San Francisco. And as a young planner, I was struck with uh, just how vulnerable their systems seem to be in a city that knew that it had an earthquake hazard. And so uh, I turned my city planning studies towards hazard and risk reduction and, and mitigation and was lucky enough to get uh, uh, Dr. Neil Britton as one of my thesis advisors. And so that really set me on the disaster management path at a, at a time when there were no university degrees to speak of, uh, even in North America, there would have just been um, maybe Boulder, Colorado, and University of Delaware um, research centers, but not really very much in the way of degrees. Where did the idea of having formal degree programs in EM first start? Was it down in Colorado, the Natural Hazard Center? Or? So it, it is, you know, it's interesting. The um, academic world, which has been really, you know, at least 50 years of, um, you know, physical and social sciences studying disasters, uh, but mostly looking at um, you know the causes and the the consequences to the public, and not as much emphasis on what we do about it, right? So it's sort of I like to think of it as the sort of same connection as maybe biology has to medicine, right? A lot of study into the causes and the problems, but not a lot of study into how to deal with it well. And so I think that's where the divide 
sort of built up was that the academic community was focusing more on what causes disasters and what kind of consequences our systems face. Well, the practitioners were busy trying to do something about that, uh, but without a lot of, um, you know, a lot of not a lot of research into things like how to best run an exercise or how to best organize an incident management system. Those weren't the topics that were getting researched. What does professionalization mean to you? <laughs> well, that's a, a good question. Um, within sociology, there's a, a whole school of study around occupation and, and professionalization. And it's interesting, there was a book written in the, in the 60s called The Semi-Professions, looking at occupations that didn't meet professional standard, um, but were striving for it. And the, the three they were looking at were nursing, teaching, and social work. Mm. And nowadays, um, if you told a teacher that they weren't a professional, you would need a nurse and a social worker. <laughs> the uh, professions change, right? Um, and just the same way that uh, architecture and city planning and landscape design or interior design or um, some of the subfields within professions like nursing, when you start getting into pediatrics or um, palliative care or, or other things, um, it, is, it is an evolution. And so uh, I think it was only natural that uh, as the emergency management profession grew and became uh, more, more as expected of it, um, then uh, organizations started looking for qualified uh, practitioners. Mm-hmm. And so, so for people that have been in the field for a while, what do you think has been the, the traditional path before there was formalized EM programs? How did most people get into the, uh, into the field and what were their backgrounds? Sure. Um, like lots of the other professions, in the absence of a, of a explicit sort of path through academia, uh, employers were just looking for people with similar skill sets. Right, the, um, before there were city planning schools, it was largely architects and engineers that were hired to do the uh, city planning piece. And now we've got, for the last 50 years, um, city planning schools that produce city planners. And so the same thing happened with emergency management. They went looking for people with related skills and they found them within the emergency services and they found them within um, the military. And that's where they were uh, hiring from and that uh, is is wonderful. I, I think that you have to remember that the academic um, theories and the practices that we promote at universities uh, come from the lessons that we've learned over you know five decades of studying the practice, and that was practice that was being done by those uh, practitioners. It's not it's not that there's uh, two different ways of thinking about it. It's just that we've learned the lessons from those practitioners that were hard won lessons in many cases. And now we're transferring them on to students through an academic model rather than through a learn-it-on-the-job model. Is there anything that's being lost in, in the translation from the experience base to the certification base? Are there any downsides to professionalization in our field? Well, certainly this transition period is a difficult time. We've got people who have uh, decades of experience that don't have the academic qualification that feel um, perhaps threatened or they see job ads coming up for more junior positions that they 
would struggle to meet the qualifications for because of a, a lack of a degree or something. Uh, but at the same time, we've got students coming out of programs that um, have the knowledge that they've gained through their um, classroom settings, but they don't have the time on the job yet. And our profession hasn't you know, well-established a career ladder where you can start off uh, in a, as a junior emergency manager, maybe in a large city, and and work with more experienced people as you build your own experience and, and start to apply the lessons you learned the way that, um, you know, we don't take a, a teacher or a nurse uh, straight out of university and say, okay, now you're the, the charge nurse of your own hospital, right? We, we, hmm. we understand that they come with knowledge and they need to, the time to be able to build experience of applying that knowledge. Uh, so one of the things that I think we're struggling with right now is a lack of um, entry-level jobs, uh, a lack of um, a clear, uh, you know, stepping stones that you can join the join uh, the profession and and grow over over time. Do you think the there's any confusion in terms of settling on what academic credential ought to be the prerequisite? There's so many different levels of formal education. I wonder if uh, we're still trying to make up our mind on what the entry to practice ought to be. Yeah, I think the um, two things are coming out of there. There, one is that that in the absence of the academic route, uh, you know, employers were looking at hiring people that had similar skill sets, and that had been gained over you know, decades of experience. And so I think they tended, we've tended to see emergency managers as um, a jack of all trades, mid to upper level management employee, right? And mm -hmm. lots of cities will have an emergency manager that they're paying uh, nowadays, a, a, and often a fairly decent wage to, um, because they had to, to attract a uh, um, a firefighter or a or a uh, police officer that you know may have had enough experience to be looking at a higher rank within their own organization, or somebody who's just retiring out of the military with a um, maybe an officer rank, to bring them across to the local government and pay them a similar salary. They had to do it that way, and the HR job descriptions were also built around the idea that every emergency manager is a a jack of all trades, middle topper manager. So again, that challenge is, is recognizing that within the profession, there are lots of different types of jobs. Um, some of them are heavily focused on response. Some of them are more focused on uh, mitigation or public awareness and preparedness or long-term recovery. So the skill sets that we get out of the um, emergency services in the military are very applicable to some of our tasks, but not necessarily for all of them. And we need to find better ways to staff up offices with a mix of um, academic and experience-based uh, employees that also look at mitigation and preparedness as well as just response and um, and seeing really the long-term recovery as being the other the other big issue. When we look at FEMA, I mean, they've come out with, uh, you know, positions on uh, curriculums for higher education and, and that sort of thing. Uh, has there been any sort of coordinated effort in Canada to try and establish what the body of knowledge is for emergency management and, and have that inform um, the academic programs? Yeah, there's been a, there's been a few attempts at that. Um, partially, we don't have the same uh, drive from um, Public Safety Canada that that FEMA has provided in the States in terms of their higher education program. Having said that, their higher education program was basically Wayne Blanchard. One 
one person that really drove that program for a decade and made it what it is. Um, they also benefited from a large amount of funding after 9-11 that, um, as you may know, saw the number of programs increase from a handful, maybe two dozen, to, I think last time I heard, almost 200 different institutions offering probably close to 400 different uh, degrees and diplomas and qualifications. Uh, so uh, certainly one thing is, is that the ship has sailed. The, the idea that emergency management um, won't be based off of an academic model, I, I think that decision is, has come and gone. Uh, I think that programs like ours and Royal Roads and York and the hundreds of programs in the States will continue to produce graduates who will continue to get jobs. And over the next decade or so, um, you know, we've got graduates in uh, Soul City positions, including Red Deer um, in Alberta, uh, who are ADES grads that are, uh, you know, in their mid-30s. We never used to see people in their 30s uh, get um, their own city, right? That was something that would only come to people who uh, were in their 50s, and they would do it for 10 years before they retired. I think we're going to see a, a real shift in the demographic within emergency management, and we'll see more people, uh, like I suppose like myself, who started when they were 25, and now as I approach 50, I've got 25 years' experience. You don't see that a lot, and that's, that's 25 years in organizations doing just emergency management. No paramedicine, no, no time at a police roadblock or anything else, just being an emergency manager. Um, and we've got ADA's grads that are, are you know, chasing that already with you know, 10 or 15 years experience. And it's changing, right? It's changing the profession the same way that teaching and nursing and lots of others have, have gone through similar shifts in their history. Can I, I'll comment as well. You mentioned a moment ago about um, the different degrees and the different qualifications. Yeah, FEMA's done a lot. Also, there's an interesting effort in New Zealand through their qualifications authority to um, connect a number of different emergency management tasks uh, at three different levels of competency and then connect those to different job descriptions. Again, recognizing that a local volunteer in a, a community emergency response team doesn't have to have the same background and skill set as a national director of a mitigation program. And so, again, we, have, we need to move away from that jack-of-all-trades mentality that every emergency manager does every part of the business and can do it at any level and start recognizing that maybe some people will become experts in mm -hmm. hazard assessment but won't work in an EOC. And others might become experts in long-term uh, social recovery and aspects of, of rebuilding, but won't do public awareness talks, right? And the, that will come as well, the same way now that we have specialist nurses and, and there are architects that specialize in commercial versus um, industrial versus residential housing or just about every other profession where there becomes a uh, specialization route. I, I think we'll see that as well over time. And that might also answer the question of, what do we teach at different levels, right? The, the certificate and diploma programs will be aimed at one audience, looking maybe at that smaller community or, or part-time member. And undergraduate and graduate programs will start focusing on those people who want to move into larger communities or take on um, provincial roles or federal roles. But that will take time. Um, 
Uh, it's not something that's gonna happen overnight. As we see this new generation of emergency managers moving into the workforce, um, mm -hmm. what sort of, how do you reconcile that academic route versus the experience-driven route? What sort of problems can emerge and how do we fix them? Well, I think the, the problem that I hear the most from uh, my graduates and not, I don't want to paint them with one brush, but um, I do hear some frustration because they feel that they could be um, working better if, if we were all um, working on a more common body of knowledge. And, and again, that, that I think that's a challenge that we're facing right now as well. We need to find um, better ways to integrate that experience that's out there into the classroom and then better opportunities for that um, classroom trained emergency manager to actually contribute uh, to practice as soon as possible and in meaningful ways. I'm interested to know if uh, there's a role for standardization and setting standards for practices, not just for education and that core body of knowledge. Do, mm -hmm. you, do you think there's a role there for maybe the International Association of Emergency Managers or the Ontario Association of Emergency Managers uh, or some similar sort of body? Uh, well, yeah, I, I think there's uh, two things there. I think that there's definitely a place for the CSA Z1600 um, standard around what is a, a comprehensive emergency and continuity program look like. Uh, and once you start thinking about what kind of uh, program or, if you will, product you're looking for, that sort of naturally then drives the question of who could deliver it. If you, if you need to have a, a good quality hazard and risk assessment, um, if you need uh, well-developed public awareness and uh, public education or, or risk communication materials, if you need to be able to run and actually learn from an exercise and then take action to, to fix faults. Um, those are diverse skills. And um, as we start looking at that, I think we need to be looking at how the university programs are, are delivering that. Um, so then comes the question of certifying or endorsing or some other ways recognizing the emergency management education programs. And again, other professions do this, right? The um, provincial nursing um, associations will review and and certify or, or accredit the university nursing programs. And the Canadian Institute of Planners has a process for accrediting planning schools. And then the professional associations recognize that if you've come through an accredited education program, you're a step along the route to becoming an accredited professional. Um, again, uh, I think all of that is inevitable. It's just takes time uh, for that common consensus to, to build within the profession. And, and to continue with the healthcare analogy, when you look at uh, professions, one of the what's often been written as a defining feature is self-regulation and self-governance. Do you think yes. uh, we would ever see a, a college of emergency managers or, or that sort of, uh, you know, a social contract is formed for the profession to uh, regulate itself? Yeah, I, I believe so. In Canada, um, the licensing of professions is a provincial power under the Constitution. So, um, you know, there are provinces. My, I have a partner that teaches uh, hairdressing, and so there are provinces where you have to be uh, an apprenticed, um, trained hairdresser, and there are other provinces where anyone can cut hair. Um, the same, you know, the same way will go with emergency management. Some provinces will move quicker. 
on uh, creating a, a licensing path and saying that, you know, a local municipal emergency plan has to be signed off by somebody who has a CEM or has some other process. Um, the same way we've seen that happen within, you know, architecture and engineering, you need to be able to to have a plan stamped and approved by an architecture and engineer before you can build. Uh, there will come a time, I'm sure, when we'll see that same expectation under emergency managers. I just hope that it doesn't have to come, you know, the same way we saw some of the work around water quality after Walkerton. I, I hope we don't have to go through uh, community disaster when it becomes evident that it was simply uh, poor mitigation or a uh, ill-devised response plan or something that, that leads to more loss of life or uh, damage than we um, could have expected, and that we don't have to learn that lesson the hard way, that we actually can get ahead of that and, and continue to professionalize without having to have a, a, a driving event behind us. What are some other ways to drive change within the organization that don't rely on a disaster happening? I think one of the biggest drivers that we have to be looking at is convincing the sort of broader management. I was unsuccessful in a job interview once, but uh, one of the questions the VP asked me was, what, what do you think the, the biggest drawback um, in emergency management is or what the biggest hurdle is? And I said, uh, senior management to which she expected a, an explanation. And I, oh, and I said, it's because you know, senior management want um, you know, the best emergency management program possible as long as it has no resource expectations and they don't have to hire a fully qualified person and it can all be done within the next you know, six months or before the next review. And I think that until we can convince uh, mayors and um, local, you know, provincial and federal government uh, directors and corporation um, VPs and stuff, that emergency management is just as technical and important uh, field as they'd expect from their accounting department or from their design department within an engineering firm or any other part of their organization, uh, we won't have that drive. And, I, and again, I hope that we can get that recognition, um, you know, particularly from our our provincial uh, emergency management organizations to be expecting more of our municipal um, emergency managers uh, without having to go through, you know, a clear uh, failure or crisis. Um, and I do think that provinces like Ontario are taking the, the right steps in that direction. What do you think the role is of the professional designations? And, and Ontario has one specific to Ontario, but there's yeah. also the CEM that we mentioned. Uh, do, you, do you think that's going to become a industry standard? Uh, do you think that is uh, maybe protective against this uh, <laughs> change by failure? Yeah, you know, I think it's inevitable. Um, again, if you look back at even a profession like um, medicine with the American Medical Association that we would, it's it's only just celebrating its 100th anniversary in the last decade or so. Um, but certainly back through the late 1800s, there were lots of different organizations that would call somebody a doctor. Uh, and it, it we would think of that as being something that's always been in place, but it, it wasn't. It, it took a while for the medical profession to come to terms with what it meant to be a doctor, and then that's that's grown over time. And the self-regulation comes into it, the the uh, protection of the workforce in the sense that you need to be 
um, qualified and certified as qualified um, before you can start practicing. I don't think that there's a route ahead of us that doesn't involve that. I think the only question is, will, will, will we see someone like IAM Canada step forward and, and bring a, the, the CEM to the forefront so that all provinces get on that certification? Or will we see a province-by-province approach? Um, will Public Safety Canada step forward? And, and um, you know, if, if an organization like Public Safety Canada stepped forward and said, if you want to apply for one of our uh, federal mitigation um, grants, your local authority has to be Z1600 compliant and you have to have a CEM in the role of emergency manager, You'd be a game changer because every province and every every municipality would be chasing those qualifications if there was money tied to it. Now, I wonder, in terms of setting the standards, there's always that worry that once the standard has been set, it will be uh, achieved and not surpassed only. Mm -hmm. Is there any way to mitigate that as we develop the profession? True professions uh, will have a um, self-reflective component where... Uh, the standard is always under review by those who have um, you know, achieved or uh, surpassed the standard. Uh, I'd like to see a time when something like the Z1600 um, standard, and I, I was on the technical committee for the first two um, rounds of that standard, I would love to see um, uh, second-tier standards come out so that, that under Z1600 maybe there'd be a a uh, standard around hazard and risk assessment or one around mitigation or one around um, the exercise design and, and assessment so that as organizations became uh, more and more experienced and qualified, they could start pursuing um, a series of hurdles rather than just a single standard. And the same, uh, I think, within the CEM uh, that we may find ourselves looking at um, the certified emergency manager maybe as the general um, assessment, but then maybe we'll see other uh, qualifications being tacked onto that. What do you think, um, you know, for for the average emergency manager listening, what can we do as, as individuals or um, how can we actually make progress in the field? And what do you think the best way of doing that would be? Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I find it uh, ironic at times that our profession, which is built around the idea that we can identify risk and take actions to, to avoid those risks, that we then sort of blindly stumble forward in terms of the growth of our profession, even though we can look across at lots of other professions and see what they stumbled on, um, and arguably we could try to, to avoid that. My, my biggest concern, um, or in some ways frustration, is some of it, is, I guess, is the regionalization, um, the feeling that uh, emergency managers in uh, Alberta need to have um, their own association and have different rules and skill sets than emergency managers in Quebec or Nova Scotia or somewhere else. I think that yeah. um, even though licensing is a provincial matter, uh, I think we'd, we'd make stronger progress as a profession if we could um, recognize that that we're all in this together, because then it'd be more opportunities for cross-border training and deployments and other other ways to gain experience. You know, I've I've heard um, people criticize IAM as being an American organization, and that IAM Canada is just sort of a branch of a an American organization. 
But I always say back that whatever association all the Canadian emergency managers join will be the Canadian Association of Emergency Managers, right? It doesn't matter what name um, or whether it came out of Ontario or Alberta or somewhere else. Um, once we all join something, uh, it will reflect all of our our inputs. But right now, we seem to be uh, dividing and conquering ourselves rather than coming together. Um, I was president of the Manitoba chapter of the Canadian Emergency Preparedness Association back when SEPA was alive and well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think SEPA showed that there was an interest in, in seeing a, a professional body of, of emergency management practitioners. But at the time, I don't think there was the support that we needed from Public Safety Canada and from the provinces. Uh, one, of the, one of the challenges when you have a professional association is that sometimes they push back against government policy or they speak up when they see something that's not being done right or they don't see the funding or other issues. And we need that as well. We need to have that independent voice lobbying government to say, do the job better. Because in the end, that's going to be good for the profession. Jack Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, no problem. Happy to talk. You've a lot to think about, and I'm sure we'll, we'll uh, talk to you again soon. I would like that very much. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks, Grace. That was Jack Lindsay, an associate professor at Brandon University, where he teaches the Applied Disaster and Emergency Studies program. He has over 25 years of emergency management experience and has contributed to the field through multiple research uh, projects and publications. Huge resource, and we are very happy to have had him on the show. And with that, let's move on to the Journal Club segment of our show. On this episode, we're reviewing three different articles, and the one I chose to review is called uh, Building a Framework for Calgary's Emergency Volunteers. It's authored by Susan Waldman, Simon Verga, and Matt Godso, uh, and done by the DRDC, so the Defence Research and Development Canada. This document was produced after the Calgary floods in which there was a surge of spontaneous volunteers and there were some definite challenges that arose around managing them and coordinating their efforts. Uh, and I think this article does a great job of talking about some of the history and the historical perspectives surrounding volunteer management. Uh, there used to be this idea that volunteers should be controlled absolutely and denied access to disaster sites. And that has shifted a little bit to treating them as a strength. And it goes through some of the key tasks that occurred during disaster response. And uh, through a panel sort of assessment, it talks about whether or not this is a public responsibility or something that can be done by volunteer agencies. And I was surprised to see that the, the attitudes surrounding that were mixed in almost all cases, except for perhaps the search and rescue portion of a disaster response. So for something like medical response, for example, uh, I would have thought that would be very much the role of a, a government or a public agency. Uh, and turns out there's plenty of room for volunteer agencies such as St. John Ambulance or Red Cross uh, for that initial response. So a really great article, lots of good points, uh, and most importantly, I think, is it's a made-in-Canada framework for emergency volunteering, which could be taken up by other Canadian municipalities. Yeah, I think the management of spontaneous volunteers... Um, has been a topic that's been, you know, comes up in the literature a lot, but it's nice to see some tangible um, 
efforts to actually improve the process. I think there's I've seen a lot of descriptive work describing the phenomenon of spontaneous volunteers. And we know, you know, that the majority of rescue work and things like that are done by spontaneous volunteers. But uh, yeah, this is, I think, a nice uh, uh, kind of knowledge transition article uh, that's actually trying to put forward uh, um, some tangible uh, tools. So that's nice to see. Uh, the next article is uh, out of the journal Disaster. It's by McKinsey, and it's entitled De Deconstruction of Destruction Stories, Narrative, Inequality, and Disasters. And this is quite an interesting uh, paper. It comes from a sociologic perspective, and essentially it sought to better understand how the media covered, covers disasters. And the author looked at two tornado events uh, that happened in the United States and then followed uh, several uh, mainstream uh, newspapers in terms of how they told stories about the disaster and what sort of narrative arose out of those events. And this is an interesting look because what emerged was some reproducible themes that seem to uh, hold true for most uh, news coverage. And that is, you know, themes of heroism, themes of coming together, themes of, you know, communities rising up over, you know, devastation. And really uh, a kind of understated theme that disasters don't discriminate. Um, and they showed not just speeches, but uh, also uh, uh, editorials talking about how you know disasters uh, affect everybody equally, and how disasters uh, impact communities regardless of race or religion, and and those sort of things. And we know, um, you know, the research really doesn't support that. We know that disasters absolutely target uh, people who are lower socioeconomic status to begin with, and that there is quite a bit of heterogeneity in terms of the impact from disasters. And that often doesn't come through in uh, um, the storytelling that emerges from disasters. So I think it's an interesting article that this study looked at those two events and then followed the uh, news cycle for, for several months afterwards. And, and the author also commented on the lack of long-term follow-up beyond the initial kind of um, uh, impact phase with all the dramatic footage of uh, demolished buildings and rescue efforts and that sort of thing, and how there wasn't much in the way of of long-term recovery stories or mitigation stories and that sort of thing. So an interesting uh, critique, um, and I definitely uh, recommend, uh, uh, recommend it as a read. And lastly, uh, the final article here is called Urban Critical Infrastructure Interdependencies in Emergency Management. This is in the journal Disaster Prevention and Mitigation by Bale uh, uh, and colleagues. Published this month, and an interesting uh, what started off more as it sounds like is a thought experiment trying to figure out what are the actual interdependencies between critical infrastructure and what the research team did was they looked at a uh, developing city in Africa that was at the early stages of still um, uh, building uh, critical infrastructure and making those initial connections between things like power plants and water plants and um, other uh, kind of critical infrastructure. What they tried to do was essentially a, a out, make an algorithm that uses like a fault tree analysis and would simulate based on historical precedents different disaster inputs and, and uh, um, reactions uh, from 
floods, fires, that sort of thing. And what they found was an interesting phenomenon that, that kept reoccurring in many of their computer models, which was uh, the idea of a domino effect or a cascade failure that gets reached when a certain number of critical infrastructure nodes in a network are impacted. And I think that is the, an interesting concept uh, when you're trying to design a resilient uh, city and, and, and build resilience into your critical infrastructure. Uh, they found that power transmission was, uh, as the bedrock, the most unifying critical infrastructure, and that uh, the authors suggest that if you have limited money to spend, that it's best spent on hardening power supplies because a distribution network uh, tends to support many other kind of critical functions. So if you have to pick one utility, um, the, the, keeping the lights on might be the most important one. Um, Anyways, it's, it was an interesting model. Uh, some of the methodology in the paper I take issue with, uh, certainly anytime you're doing modeling like this, it includes a lot of uh, confounding variables. So I don't know if the external validity of the paper um, is that strong. I don't know how generalizable it would be necessarily to Canadian practice, but I think it's a, a noble effort to try and understand this uh, phenomenon a bit better. Because really, when we're talking about a systems level plan and a, as part of a comprehensive emergency plan, um, getting down to the granular detail of what nodes are the weakest is, is important. And I think that's what the authors were trying to do. So I definitely applaud their efforts. Up next is the tool of the trade section of the episode. If you recall, in his interview, Jack Lindsay drew analogies between the health profession and the emergency management profession. So I think it's very appropriate that we've found a tool of the trade that satisfies both. And it is the Public Health Agency of Canada or PHAC training website. So publichealth.gc.ca slash training. And if you browse through their various courses, you'll find quite a few that have a lot to do with emergency management. For example, Emergency Social Services module is on here. It's a, a few hours long uh, module that gives you a certificate at the end. Uh, there's also a Surge, Sort and Support module, which I think is an excellent resource uh, deal to deal with mass casualty incidences. And there's a, a plethora of other courses. So a good Canadian tool of the trade. Yeah, definitely a good resource. Well, that's it for this episode of Epic Podcast, uh, looking at professionalization and emergency management. Thanks again to Jack Lindsay and a shout out to all of the uh, Brandon emergency management students. Uh, we, we've uh, I've personally worked with some graduates of the program, so hopefully uh, we get more exports uh, from Brandon over to, to Alberta. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production. As always, this production is designed as a supplementary educational tool for the emergency management professional. And the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that myself or Josh are employed by or may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, please visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. And feel free to follow us on Facebook at Epic Podcast, all one word, or send us a tweet at username Epic Podcast. Until then, I'm Josh. And I'm Grayson. This has been Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Current, relevant, Canadian.